I want to open my message this morning by sharing with you part of the resurrection story as recorded by Luke in his gospel, his biography of Jesus Christ. It starts in Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. He has risen. A few years ago, I was on a flight to Seattle, Washington, heading over there to do some speaking. And it's always interesting to see who you're going to end up sitting next to on a flight. On this particular day, I ended up sitting next to a young man who was about my age. His name was Matt. And I found out that he was an executive with a large clothing retailer. You would all know uh, the the name. Uh, They're found in every mall around the country. And he was flying over to Seattle uh, for business. And we struck up a conversation because I had noticed that Matt was reading a book on world religions. Now, I've spent my life studying world religions, and I do some teaching on world religions. And so I was just sort of interested. And I I asked Matt as we talked, I said, Matt, what's your interest in world religions? I noticed the book you're reading. And he said, well, you know, Jason, I've been, I've been studying philosophy and religion for a couple of years now, and I've really been trying to just explore, you know, which of the different religions are really, is really true. You know, is, is there one in particular that I, should, that I should follow, that I should put my faith in? And he, he said to me, he said, you know, Jason, he had all, we had already been talking for a few minutes, and he had heard that I was a Christian and a pastor. And he said, you know, Jason, as a Christian and as a pastor, Tell me, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? You know, if you were to boil it down to the, to the simple essence, the, the core reasons for why you believe in Jesus, what would you say? What's your bottom line, Jason? Well, you know, there were a lot of things that ran through my mind that I could have shared with Matt that afternoon on the airplane. You know, there are many reasons for why I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, why I believe that he is the way to salvation. But as I thought about it, I I responded to Matt. I said, Matt, you know what? If I were to really boil it down to one simple reason, one key reason for why I'm a follower of Jesus today, I said, Matt, it really is easy. It boils down to one word, resurrection, resurrection. And I shared with Matt, I'm a follower of Jesus first and foremost because Jesus Christ is a risen Savior. He was crucified on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he miraculously rose from the grave. And I said, Matt, more than anything else, I have put my trust in Jesus because he is a living Savior. And I went on to share with Matt, you know, that's unique out of all the different religions in the world. No other philosopher, no other great religious leader ever dared to make the claim that he would rise from the grave. And no one ever actually did rise from the grave other than Jesus Christ. Muhammad never rose from the dead. Buddha never rose from the dead. All the great religious leaders, 
They died and they were buried and they were placed in the grave. But Jesus Christ conquered death. Jesus Christ is a risen Savior, a risen Lord. And I went on to share with Matt that afternoon some of the many reasons for why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share some of those with you here this morning. But what I want you to understand here today as we celebrate Easter on this Sunday morning is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay, the reason we're here, the reason we even have an Easter holiday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very heart of the Christian faith. Everything we believe and profess as Christians rests on the claim that Jesus Christ conquered death and physically rose from the grave. See, understand this, friends. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity really is meaningless. Christianity rests on the resurrection. In fact, even the Apostle Paul acknowledged the pivotal necessity of Christ's literal bodily resurrection from the grave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul in verses 12 through 20, he declares that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is untrue, Paul says, and I quote, our preaching is useless, our faith is futile, we are false witnesses, and we are to be pitied more than all men. Wow. Those are some strong words. But you see, friends, Paul understood that everything we believe as Christians rests on the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only Paul, but Jesus himself based his entire ministry, his claims, his teachings, his prophecies, all on his declarations that he would be killed, but then would rise again from the grave. See, to put it simply, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the truth of Christianity stand or fall together. And so the question before us this Easter Sunday morning is simply this. Do we have reason to believe that Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave? Do we have reason to believe the story of the resurrection? It's very interesting, over the past 2,000 years, many different skeptics and critics have questioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some said the whole thing was a conspiracy, that the disciples of Jesus stole and hid his body and then went on to proclaim that he had risen from the grave. Others have argued that Jesus never really died. He was tortured so severely on the cross that he actually lapsed into a coma. And the soldiers mistakenly thought he was dead, and his disciples mistakenly thought he was dead, and they placed him in a tomb. Three days later, after laying in the cold earth, Jesus was revived and came back to life and declared that he had conquered the grave. And yet others dismissed the resurrection as being nothing more than hallucinations. The disciples were all just seeing things. But friends, the reality is this morning, the historical evidence for Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection from the grave is just too great for us to dismiss. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to highlight for us five key pieces of evidence 
five key pieces of evidence that really build a cumulative case for the historical reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. He's alive today. He's a living Savior. The historical facts of the resurrection show five key points. Number one, Jesus Christ was truly dead. Jesus Christ was truly dead. Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus had been tortured severely. The Gospels tell us that he was beaten on at least two separate occasions by Jewish guards and Roman guards. Beaten severely. He was scourged with a cat of nine tails, which is a whip made of leather thongs with pieces of lead and glass and sharpened bone woven into them. The Roman soldiers would tie the victim up to a post and they would stand on either side of the victim and they would take these whips and take turns one after another, scourging the back of the accused. Jesus' back would have been torn to shreds. He had been crowned with a crown of thorns, a crown of two-inch thorns pressed into his skull, piercing his flesh. He was then forced to carry the 100-pound crossbeam of the cross upon his bloody and exposed back up to the hill called Golgotha, where he would be crucified. The Gospels tell us, though, that Jesus had been beaten so badly that he collapsed on the way there. He wasn't able to make it under his own power. And another man had to carry his cross for him. At Golgotha, known as the place of the skull, Jesus was crucified. Nine-inch iron nails were hammered through his wrists and ankles, fastening his wrists and feet to the cross. Jesus hung on that cross for hours in agony, eventually dying of suffocation. The Roman soldiers in charge of Jesus' execution broke the legs of the two criminals crucified next to him in order to hasten their deaths. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't bother to break his legs because they recognized that Jesus was already dead. To verify this, the Roman soldiers jabbed a spear through the side of Jesus' chest. And the Gospels report that blood and water flowed out from the wound, indicating death by traumatic shock and heart failure. And should you think that all of this is just a story made up by Jesus' followers, friends, you need to know this morning that there are several early non-Christian sources that also attest to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ including the Roman historians Josephus and Tacitus, hardly prejudiced witnesses. Secondly, Jesus was buried in a tomb. History tells us that after his execution, Jesus' body was wrapped in 75 pounds of spices, myrrh, and grave clothes, which together would have hardened and become like cement. Jesus was encased in a in a mummy-like tomb of grave clothes. He was then buried in a solid rock tomb, a tomb that was owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious ruling body of the day. A large stone weighing roughly one to two tons would have been released from a ramp carved into the face of the tomb, crashing into place blocking the entrance of the tomb, 
The stone was so large that it would have taken many men to move it out of the way. A Roman seal was then placed on the tomb, indicating the penalty of death for anyone who dared disturb the secured tomb. And not only that, but along with the seal, an elite Roman guard unit made up of 16 men was ordered to stand guard outside the tomb, also under penalty of death, should anyone disturb the body. And yet, in spite of all of this, Jesus rose. After three days, the tomb was empty. History tells us that after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was discovered unguarded, unsealed, and unoccupied. The grave clothes were there. They were all intact. And yet, there was no body. The enemies of Jesus couldn't deny the reality of the empty tomb. In fact, the Jews plotted to tell the Romans that Jesus' body had been stolen. A clear admission that the tomb was indeed empty. Interestingly, there is no early record of anyone ever disputing the claim of the empty tomb. You see, it was a known tomb. It was owned by a prominent man, Joseph of Arimathea. It was just a short walk outside of Jerusalem. It was there for anyone to see. And so no one ever disputed the fact that the tomb was empty. But where was Jesus? History attests that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many different people in many different places and situations, showing himself to be physically alive. Many eyewitnesses saw the risen Jesus. In fact, in one remarkable event, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that over 500 of the brothers, the followers of Jesus, saw Jesus risen, resurrected at the same time, in the same place. Now understand this, friends. When Paul says there were 500 brothers who saw Jesus alive at the same time, in the same place, Understand that in the ancient world, they only counted men in their historical records. So when Paul says there were 500 believers who saw Jesus alive, he was actually really probably telling us that there was likely an equal number of women and children present as well, if it was a typical gathering. And so now we're talking not only 500 eyewitnesses, now we're talking upwards of 1,000 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, friends, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians just 15 years after these events took place. In other words, most of these eyewitnesses were still alive for any doubters or skeptics to go and check on. They could have been followed up on. What's also interesting to note, think about this. Jerusalem at the time of Jesus had a population somewhere in the ballpark of 40,000 people. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us that there were a thousand eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. Friends, if you do the math, that means that one out of 40 people in Jerusalem had seen the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. I mean, imagine that. You go up into town and you run into your friend Chad, and Chad says, Jason, you're never going to believe what I saw this morning. Jesus is alive. And you're thinking, all right, Chad, uh, I don't know what you had to drink last night, but you know, something, something's not right here. And then you walk over and you go down to the bank and you run into your buddy Tom. And Tom says, Jason, you're never going to believe what we saw this morning. Jesus is alive. He's risen. 
All right, Tom and Chad must have been hanging out last night. <laughs> but then you run into Dan, and Dan says, Jason, we saw Jesus. He's alive. And, and you keep running into so many people that pretty soon you have to wonder, is there more going on? All these people can't be wrong. All these people can't be making up the story. Friends, why didn't the Jews or the Romans put a stop to the resurrection story? They couldn't stop it because there were simply far too many eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus risen with their own eyes. The historical facts next reveal that many lives were dramatically changed as a direct result of the risen Jesus. Take, for example, Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples went from being disillusioned and cowardly after his death, hiding in fear, to boldly and publicly proclaiming the truth of Jesus and his resurrection just a few short weeks later. And more than that, church tradition testifies that 11 of the 12 disciples would eventually be killed as a direct result of their profession that Jesus had risen from the grave. He was the resurrected Savior and Lord. Now, friends, people throughout history have unwittingly given their lives for false beliefs. But understand this this morning. Nobody gives their life for something that they know to be false. So what accounts for the radical change in Jesus' disciples? We also have the example of James, the brother of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that during Jesus' ministry, his brothers wanted nothing to do with him. They thought he was crazy. I mean, can you imagine your brother walking around telling people he's the Messiah? All right, yeah, whatever. Jesus' brothers wanted nothing to do with the guy. And yet, James later becomes a convinced believer. He's so convinced that his brother is the risen Messiah that he eventually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and he writes one of the great books in the New Testament, the book of James. James was so convinced that his brother was the resurrected son of God that he eventually went to his death for his beliefs. See, the Jews in Jerusalem came to James and they told him, you need to stop preaching about Jesus. James says, I can't. He's risen. He's alive. He is the Messiah. And so the Jews said, James, if you don't stop preaching about Jesus, we're going to take you to the top of the temple, and we're going to throw you off the very top of the temple. James says, I can't stop preaching about Jesus. And so they took him to the top of the temple, and they threw him off the top of the temple. James plunged to the ground. Somehow he survived the fall. And so the Jews proceeded to stone him to death. All because he refused to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. Friends, does that sound like a guy leading a conspiracy to you? Then you have the Apostle Paul, who started out his life as a religious zealot named Saul. He was a persecutor of Christians with blood on his hands. He hated the church of Jesus Christ. And yet somehow this man goes on to become the greatest champion of early Christianity, writing the majority of the New Testament and taking the message of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. 
The Apostle Paul was so convinced that Jesus Christ was risen, that he was the Savior, the Messiah, that the Roman Emperor Nero beheaded him for his faith. He refused to renounce Jesus Christ. How do you account for these changed lives? What could motivate such radical transformations? Unless, as each of these men declared, they had seen the risen Jesus. Friends, when you consider the evidence, history bears powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, after examining all of this evidence, we're still left with one inescapable question. A question that Jesus asked his disciples 2,000 years ago. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? See, friends, that's really the heart of the matter this Easter morning. Easter forces us to confront the reality that 2,000 years ago, a man who walked this earth, a man who forever changed the course of history, also claimed to be God in human flesh. And as that famous Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis once observed, Jesus was either an incredible liar or a raving lunatic or what if? What if everything he said is true? What if he really did rise from the grave? Well, then the only possible conclusion is he truly was who he claimed to be, the risen Lord, the Son of God, God in human flesh. And friends, if this is true, the implications are staggering. And there is no one more important for us to listen to or to follow. Consider some of the words of Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 6, 40, Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then in that most famous of Bible verses, John three sixteen, Jesus tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Friends, what if it's all true? What if the evidence is right? What if all the signs point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world? What if Easter is God's sign to us? In 1915, an event took place that shocked the world. A British ocean liner off the coast of Ireland was hit by a German torpedo, a German U-boat. It was an event that ushered the United States into World War I. 
1,200 of the 1,900 passengers on board this ship called the Lusitania would go to their deaths, many of them drowning. In her book, Lusitania, an epic tragedy, Diana Preston recorded the observation of one of the passengers. He was a man named Charles Laureate. In her book, she writes, as the ship was sinking and as Laureate looked around to see who needed life jackets, he noticed that among the crowds now pouring on deck, nearly everyone who passed by him that that was wearing a life jacket had it on incorrectly. In his panic, one man had thrust one arm through an armhole and his head through another armhole. Others rushed past wearing them upside down. No one had read the neat little signs all around the ship telling people how to put them on. Laureate tried to help, but some thought he was trying to take their life jackets from them, and they fled in terror. Preston continues, dead and drowning people were dotting the sea like seagulls. Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jackets on the wrong way up so that their heads were pushed under the water. What a tragedy. All those people drowned because they ignored the signs that were right in front of them. And they perished with their life jackets on the wrong way up. Friends, the signs that point to life are right here for all to see. God has revealed the way to a right relationship with him. And that way is Jesus Christ. The question is, will you heed the signs in God's word? See, you've heard the evidence this morning. And now the decision is yours. Will you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? See, there's no other way that leads to life. And there's no one else who can save you. In the book of Romans, Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, that's our fundamental problem as human beings this morning, friends, is that each and every one of us here has rebelled against God and his will for our lives. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against our creator. And all of us have sinned. And we all fall short of God's glory. God is holy. He is righteous. He knows no sin. He is morally perfect. He is pure. And every single one of us here falls short of God's holy holy standard. And that's our problem. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that God was not content to let his creation stay separated from him because of their sin. God and his great love for us 2,000 years ago in the greatest event the world has ever seen, an event that forever transformed history, separating history into B.C. and A.D., God personally revealed himself to us when he took on flesh, becoming a man. And Jesus Christ went to that cross and he nailed himself to the cross as the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when he shed his blood on that cross, he didn't just die a physical death, but he died a spiritual death, taking all the sins of the world and all the wrath of God upon himself as the just and perfect penalty, the just and perfect payment for our sin. 
He bore our penalty on that cross. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death. That's the penalty for our sin. It's death. Physical death, but more significantly, spiritual death. Eternal separation from our Creator God. That's the bad news. The good news, though, and the reason the gospel is called the good news is because Paul goes on to tell us that while the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus went to that cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so that when we put our faith in him, when we put our trust in him, he applies that payment of his death to us. When Jesus died on a cross, his last words were, it is finished. It is finished. And he stamped paid in full. The penalty had been paid for our sins. And the Bible tells us that salvation is a gift. It's a free gift that God offers each and every one of us. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. It's a gift. Have you received that gift? Have you accepted the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you allowed him to wash and cleanse you of your sins and make you a new creation? Do you know what it is to be free of condemnation, free of guilt and shame? You see, Jesus can do that for you because he bore the penalty of our sins on that cross. And he proved the effectiveness of his sacrifice by rising victoriously from the grave. And so we can trust in Jesus this morning. We can hope in Jesus this morning. Have you received that free gift? God offers it to you right now this morning. You just have to receive it by faith. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the hope of Easter. We thank you that we worship a risen Savior. And Lord, we thank you for what you did for us when you went to that cross 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus, you bore our sin upon yourself on that cross, and you were sacrificed as the perfect substitute, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because of you, Jesus, we can be cleansed of our sins. We can become a new creation. And Lord Jesus, I just, I pray this morning if there's anybody here who hasn't yet received that free gift of salvation, that they might reach out to you right now and just acknowledge their need for a savior. And if you're here this morning and and if you've never received Jesus as your personal savior and Lord, you can do that right now by simply praying right now in the quiet of your own heart, Jesus, I recognize that I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you so many times. And today, Jesus, I want to receive your gift of salvation. Will you cleanse me of my sins and make me a new creation? I want to follow you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. Friends, if you pray that prayer, God will make you that new creation. You can know what it is to be 
free of guilt and shame and condemnation. You can become a child of God. Thank you, Lord, for dying for our sins. Thank you for rising from the grave. Thank you for loving us and caring about us and walking with us every single day in that personal relationship that we can have with you because of Jesus Christ. We worship a risen Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.